Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hi, I'm Keegan. And I'm Madigan. And you're listening to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist. This is a podcast where we explore the world through our own personal feminist perspective. Hello. Hello, Madigan. What's up, Keegan? Oh, you know, same old, same life in a pandemic. How are you doing? Oh, you know, this week in the pandemic has definitely shaken up my normal routine. Um, as all of you saw, we did not have a mini episode on Friday because on Thursday I uh, fell and split my chin. This is why I should never do PE class, you guys. I was trying to be a good second grade teacher and do some PE and I had to run to the door and back, to the front door and back. And they have these big, like, uh, British flag curtains hanging uh, into the entryway, into the main part of their house. And they were down right now because it keeps the heat out of the main part of the house. So I kind of, like, moved the curtain aside and, like, whipped around the corner to, like, get back as fast as I could. Right. And I believe this is the only way this could have happened. And it all happened so fast. I think both of my feet landed on this curtain because I my hands are fine. I didn't even catch myself with my hands. I literally caught myself with my chin and my ear. So my jaw to my ear is really sore. So I have a shorter story today, but I think that's why it's it's a good thing. So I fell this way and then I fell and then I like bounced okay so you literally fell like chin first yes can you here i can't tip my head back too far because they really had to pull the skin from under up to close it because it was a really open wound but you can kind of see if i turn my head yeah no it looks terrible yeah and it's well it looks bad because they have this purple glue on it so i didn't get stitches okay yeah this is like it's purple (laughs) and it's globby but you can see the scab and then around it is just kind of like it looks like a um purple elmer's glue stick do you remember those from when you were younger yes yeah no i've seen the like the like stitch glue or whatever yeah and it's very itchy (laughs) especially because it's healing um so yeah and i've got a couple bruised ribs and my hips are bruised and my shoulders kind of whacked were you were were the parents at home no, when they this were, happened? No, they were not. So oh my God. they had just left to go on a run maybe 10 minutes before. And I, yeah, I. so what happened was I fell and I started laughing because I couldn't believe like, oh my gosh, I just like ate shit. That's hilarious. And I was laughing and T came over and he was laughing. And then I lifted my head and I saw the blood coming out of my face. And I was like, and he's very scared of blood, like really like, even in a movie, can't handle it. Like a cartoon, can't handle it. So I'm like, there's blood, get out of here. And I don't have my phone. So I'm like, honey, I'm going to need you to really find my phone for me. And he's like, I don't know where it is. I don't know where it is. I'm like, everything's fine. I'm okay. Just take your time. I think it's on the kitchen table. Just go look for it. So I'm like really calm. I'm not crying. Everything's good. I'm like, there's a lot of blood coming out, but like whatever. He finally gets my phone to me. He was like covering his eyes and had to kind of like toss it half the way. So I got blood all over my phone. Ugh. Called Max. Luckily, he had just turned on the street that goes to T's house to go to work. And I was like, I'm hurt. I'm bleeding. I need you here now. And then I called uh, T's mom and I don't know the dad must have like booked it back because he got there before his wife and Max got there and then everybody's in and they just kind of like loosely bandaged me I've got blood all over my face all over my hands all over my neck and body it was just insane and of course by that time once I could see the concern on their faces I start sobbing And I'm like, and finally I feel the pain and it's horrible, but it only took me 45 minutes in urgent care. Like the whole thing took an hour and 15 minutes from injury to being home in bed. 
Oh, well, that's good at least. Well, at least yeah. you weren't like sitting in urgent care like no, waiting. No, because I scene. don't think anybody is really going right now. They're not because that's what they, they've said. Like, don't go unless you know that you're like sick or really hurt or something like that. Yeah, so there was only one. There was like a father and son in there and I signed in and within five minutes I was seen. Yeah, it was really it was really quick and I was very impressed with how well sanitized everything was and. Well, all that's that, good. All that kind of stuff. So, yeah. I the, And you're physically feeling mostly better? Uh, yes. I'm sore. Like, I feel like I fought in a WWE match. Oh, and to make matters worse, I was driving home from work on Friday. And I was, I've was i been taking Max's car because his car uh, isn't doing so well. And I only have to drive two miles to work. My car, The car stops in the middle of an intersection on my way home from work. And I had to push the car by myself the day after all of this happened. Oh, God. So. Oh, God. I'm not doing great. My ribs are really hurting today. Um, and my jaw, after a while talking, it starts to hurt. But I should be just fine. I've taken Tylenol. I'm good to go. Okay. Okay. Well, So I'm that's sorry. my story. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, I'm glad. It's funny because, like, we've been kind of just taking pictures of, like, everything that we do during this time. And I just posted a couple to my Instagram this morning of the photos Max took of me laying in bed. And we forgot that there was a huge blood, like, line running down my neck. So it's in the picture, too. But it's fun to see all of, like, the ridiculous things that have happened during this time and like just yeah. one one more bizarre story I'm gonna get to tell and a scar to go with it I'm sure yeah so there's my little anecdote for the week well I'm glad you're okay I'm glad I'm okay too I knew I was gonna be fine I was a little worried that I was gonna have a concussion um because I've been having really bad pounding headaches but I think I would know by now. I think I am just I think fine. so too. I just, yeah, I think you're probably in the clear. I don't, I mean, I'm not a doctor, surprise, but. Thank um, you, Dr. Keegan, for telling me that so I'm welcome. just fine. Mm-hmm. That's right. <laughs> All right. I should start my own YouTube channel. Yeah. Could make millions. You could be, oh, you really would because people will listen to anything these days. That's right. And you do, you have a way of speaking too. And I think that's why our listeners like you a lot. You have a way of when you speak you sound like you know exactly what you're talking about, even if you don't. You're like I appreciate that you so speak, much. <laughs> you speak very well, where for me, I can't speak. Like, I'm a podcaster, yet I fumble over my words constantly. And I like, think you speak well, Madigan. Thank you. I have too many thoughts in my head that sometimes from brain to mouth... It's too much. And then... Oh, I know exactly what you mean. It feels like a ball of yarn in there and you're un- trying to untangle it while also trying to speak. Yes. Yeah, and as fast as you can so you don't... Because mm-hmm. I am forgetful too. So I'll have something in my mind and I'm like running. It's just horrible. It's that horrible. happens to me all the time. Right. All the time. But I don't think anybody would buy... If I were to do a YouTube channel and claim to be a doctor, I don't think anybody would believe me. Where I think that if you were to go on and like seriously say like, look, I'm a doctor... Basically, you would get cast as a doctor. I don't think I ever would. I'll just play. I'll just play them clips from that one time that I was in a Northwest College commercial mm-hmm. as a nursing student. Mm-hmm. Be like, see, doctor, doctor. This was me in nursing school. Okay, <laughs> so we did a little last minute switcheroo yesterday on our topic. Um, we were going to talk about the bro code, which I think. Uh, is very similar to our toxic masculinity right. episode. And yeah, a lot of other it things. just started feeling because there are certain things that d- are distinctive, right? Because right. we were going to talk about like bro code, bro culture. A lot of that, especially in the United States, is like fraternity culture, um, which is its own specific thing. Right, but. It feels more like maybe something we could do as like a bonus mini episode rather than trying to stretch it out into an hour because exactly. a lot it would be of the topics redundant. overlapped with um, with toxic masculinity. So yeah. yesterday you suggested doing a, a forgotten feminist favorite, mm-hmm. and I was like, yeah, I'm on board. I love doing these. Um, I did a lot of research this morning because we did a last uh, a last minute kind of change, but I I think I. I think I was able to get a lot of good facts. <laughs> good. Mine is it mine is quite short, but it is something I saw a picture of her on Instagram and I had like just that morning and I was like, "Oh my gosh, I wonder if there's enough about this person to to uh teach you all about her." 
And there is. Awesome. It's pretty. Well, it's pretty short. I have like two pages of notes, which is impossible for me typically. But it's a really great story that still needs to be told. So awesome. And you go first. This I believe week. I do go first. Yeah. yeah. So I am going to be telling you all the legend of the unofficial Saint Escrava Anastasia. So okay, Escrava means slave. And she is most well known, I'm sure, like if, as soon as I describe this image, you guys will probably know who I'm talking about. It's an image of a black slave. She has blue eyes and she's wearing a muzzle over her face right. and an iron mm-hmm. collar. So, And this has revived, this image has revived lately. Yes. For which obvious reasons. What I was going to get to. And I didn't even, that did not even come up when I was researching yesterday. And luckily Max mentioned it to me this morning when I was telling him the story. He was like, oh, you got to look at that. And I was like, of course people are doing this shit. So we'll get to that at the end. I want to tell you a little bit about the lore behind her. Now there's tons of different um, stories because she is a legend. We don't know for sure that she existed. Uh, there are some things that link to there could be a person similar to this. Um, but because of that, the fun of it is that there's lots of different stories about her. So I'm going to do my best to kind of try to interweave as many of these stories as I can without it getting too confusing. So Anastasia was a female slave of African descent who lived in Brazil sometime during the 19th century. So nobody knows where she was born for sure. She was either born in Nigeria before her mother was sent on a slave ship. She was either or she was born on the ship or she was born in Brazil. Typically, the Brazilian community like to kind of say that she was born in Brazil. It makes her more this Brazilian icon. Um, but it just kind of depends on who you ask. So one of the most widely known beliefs is that Anast- it, it's they said it Anast- Anastasia on the... Mm-hmm. So I keep saying Anastasia, so I apologize. Uh, one of the most widely known beliefs about Anastasia was actually that she was of royal blood. So they believed that she was from a royal African family before being brought to Brazil. A popular story has her linked to Delminda, who was a black woman from the Bantu tribe in southern Nigeria, who was the daughter of the royal family of Gelanga. Uh, and they were brought to Brazil in 1740, along with a cargo of 112 other slaves. Delminda was raped by her white master and was sold to Joaquin Pompeo while she was pregnant with Anastasia to remove any evidence of the master's affair she was sent away. So basically, you know, the the man who had an affair with Anastasia's mother didn't want the wife to find out, didn't want it to look bad upon him in society. Right. So he I mean, shipped- and... We're saying affair in quotes so that everybody knows. Oh, for sure. It was rape. Yeah. Like it was it was rape for sure. It was not a mutual affair. You're using the language they're using. Yes, exactly. This is what it said in the article. But thank you for pointing that out. Not an affair. Very much rape. But he got her pregnant and he was like, my wife can't know. Society can't know. I'm going to ship you off to Brazil. So it is believed that Delminda gave birth to Anastasia. Anastasia. I can't say Anastasia to save my life. I want to say Anastasia. Uh, but they say she was born on March 5th, although the year is unknown. But hey, Pisces. What's up? And what's up? That was actually my dog Buddy's birthday. Speaking of which, <laughs> it's Dorothy's fifth birthday today. So happy oh, birthday, Happy Dee. birthday, Dorothy. She's, you know, living her best life. So they say she was born on March 5th, but it's weird because they don't know what year she was born. So I'm wondering if there must have been some sort of birth record for somebody. But then that gets confusing because people say she doesn't exist. I don't know. It's a whole thing. But they believe that she was born somewhere in the first half of the 19th century on March 5th. Um, it was obvious immediately that this baby was unique. Anastasia was born with dark skin, but she had bright blue eyes. So she was, uh, many people say that she was known as the first slave to have blue eyes. I don't know if that's necessarily true. We know that uh, rape between masters and slaves have gone by for many, many years prior to this. So there is a good chance that another slave could have had blue eyes, but it kind of added to this like mystic beauty of hers that she had even as a baby. 
So Right, and this is a legend, so some of the facts are going to be a little loose, and that's okay. That's part of what makes it a legend. Exactly. So, and this and this is another kind of fun part of it. For those who believe that she was born on the ship to Brazil, they believe that she was born with brown eyes, but when she looked into the sea, her eyes turned blue. So that's like another oh, kind of fun little thing that they added there so as she grew up her beauty grew as well she was known for being unbelievably beautiful they say she was statuesque had a beautiful face and her master's son Joaquin Antonio had become obsessed with her which sounds like the most annoying thing in the world to have to like already I'm a sugar plantation worker and I'm pretty so your son wants to fuck me and I have to like get him off of me constantly like that just sounds like a horrible I mean we've look at times up right look at like sexual harassment in the workplace is something that continues to go on and this isn't even a workplace she's a slave yeah exactly i mean it's 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 comparative but not because she really doesn't have a choice she's got no agency no recourse she can't leave yeah well and the other thing is that she made a lot of white women really jealous because she was so beautiful so there are many different uh, versions for how Anastasia ended up in her iron muzzle that she wears. One says that the women in the area that had had interactions with her went to the owner and basically was like, she's too pretty and we need to put a stop to this. Uh, some say that the muzzle was a form of punishment for trying to aid slaves into escape or stealing sugar from the plantation. Um, the mask itself is actually called a scold's brittle, and it's also called a witch's brittle, and oh, some other a, things. Oh, it's a bridle. Yeah, bridal. We talked yes, about thank this you. In our um, in our witch episode, yes, I believe. we the did. The scold's bridle. The yes. scold's bridle. Why did I say brittle? There's one D. <laughs> um, so let me just explain this to you. It was used as a form of torture and punishment. Uh, the device is an iron muzzle on an iron framework that encloses the head. A bridle bit, about two inches by one inch in size, was slid into the mouth and either pressed down on top of the tongue as a compress or used to raise the tongue to prevent speaking. The wearer would often suffer from excessive salivation and fatigue of the mouth and trouble breathing. And I got all that from Wikipedia. Um, And this was the punishment most often used for women and for slaves. And Anastasia was both. Right. And it was used a lot in Europe, actually, um, which is not surprising that they then started using it on slaves. Um, But it was used a lot for women in Europe who they felt like talked too much. So it was almost like a punishment for being an outspoken person. Yeah. um, Because it it had spikes oftentimes on the inside, which would cause injury when you tried to speak. Right. And and if it didn't have the spikes, it was still compressing down on your tongue and the other thing is that this was made of iron and there are certain components in iron like that she would slowly be giving herself iron poisoning the longer she wears this so another theory of how this bridal was put on her was because she refused the advances of Joaquin Antonio Uh, but it is it's pretty well believed that she was raped before having the muzzle put on her by Joaquin Antonio. So it really was a very, it sounds like they did their best to humiliate her and degrade her as much as possible before doing something very permanent that was meant to degrade her. It was meant to show very publicly that she had done something shameful. Oh, and she was only allowed to take the muzzle off once a day in order to eat. Otherwise, she wore it all the time, which I would assume that means even while she's asleep. I don't know. I would assume, yeah. That's horrible. I wonder if she couldn't... I wonder how you would take it. There must have been like a key, right? Or something like that where you would have to unlock it. Otherwise, you'd think she could just take it off herself, right? Right, yeah. That's what I would assume. There's got to be something there that would make it hard for her in her private time to take it off, you know? Uh, So while many would have been hardened and cold because of this and kind of lived more of a recluse life, she actually just remained to be as sweet and peaceful and wonderful as she always was. And the other thing that's kind of mysterious about uh, when this iron collar and this muzzle was put on her, they say that it gave her these miraculous healing powers. And so she would have... um, the slaves on her plantation and within the community come and she would lay her th- her hands on them and heal them. So she was uh, very well known as being this very peaceful, loving, powerful slave woman. 
uh, even on her deathbed. So she was slowly, slowly dying from iron poisoning. They also say that she died of tetanus and there was a bunch of other things that they say she could have died of. But we know now that it was most likely a slow death from iron poisoning. So she's on her deathbed and her master has the audacity to bring his son into her who is deathly ill and begs her to heal his son. And her last act before she passed away was to heal her master's son. And it is known that she forgave her master. She's a better lady than me. Better lady than me. Well, and that's the thing is that there's another story about that's very that seems very sensationalized like this sounds like a Hollywood writer wrote this Uh, there's another story that depicts uh, Anastasia as her master's mistress having had a passionate love affair like mutual loving passionate love affair but when the slave master's wife discovers his love for the slave she imposed the muzzle and iron collar as punishment and revenge so that's another kind of indicator Another option, I guess, of stories that people have told. And it sounds like there was a miniseries that came out in Brazil in the 90s. And it sounds like that's kind of the story they went with, or at least the kind 90s of. really liked that storyline. They yeah. loved the forbidden romance between the slave and the slave master storyline. So yes. that wouldn't. Um, that wouldn't surprise me if that's the path that they chose to take. It is a more, you know, those romantic takes, love stories sell better, I'm sure. Yeah, here it says, it portrayed Anastasia as a Nigerian princess captured by slavers. Anastasia is told to a cruel, is sold to a cruel master who falls in love with her and eventually tries to rape her for refusing her master. Anastasia is punished by being forced to wear a face mask. So maybe, oh, okay. so maybe it is kind of more realistic to that. But that's the thing is that we don't, we don't know you know there's also just the women didn't like her and were jealous and wanted to suppress her and didn't we tell us we told another story like that where like white women were intimidated by a black slave's beauty well that's that's the whole basis behind the um tignon laws that happened in um yes louisiana yes the reason why women wear head wraps black women were made to wear head wraps because they were seen as these very like exotic beauties and white women uh, in the South became jealous of that. And so it was supposed to be a form of humiliation that they weren't allowed to show their hair. Um, And so they started forcing those, enforcing those laws. Right. They would do things that would make, you know, beautiful black women appear to be more unattractive so that she, they wouldn't raise up in society. Um, So after her death, her, her owner renounced her slave status uh, she was buried in Rio de Janeiro at a church in, at the Church of Rosario. However, her remains were lost in a fire, and I couldn't find anything else about that. So I'm like, wait, what? They're like the end, the end. Like her, <laughs> but I'm like, wait, what do you mean her remains? It's very confusing. So when she died, those who revered her for her healing abilities began to admire her even more, and her story started spreading like wildfire across Brazil. And many began to see Anastasia as the representation of black slaves in Brazil, and she became a very inspiring um, image for the slaves that were still imprisoned and for you know the abolitionist movement and so many great things her image has become very very popular so she became a symbol of resistance as i said as protests arose against the oppression of her people and they began to see her as kind of a saint so they kind they were working with the catholic church to try to have her canonized as a saint so for those of you who didn't go to catholic school growing up i didn't brush up on any of my notes so this is all from the top of my head i didn't keep my notes from fifth grade sorry but to in order to be canonized as a saint there are certain qualifications that you need to have one of them being documented miracles so the big thing with her because she was known to be this healer was that they wanted her stories of her of her um, miracles to be told as quote-unquote evidence to be canonized into the catholic church however uh in the later years like i think it was in the 80s the Catholic Church, yes, here we go. In 1987, the Catholic Church claimed that Anastasia never existed and ordered that her image be removed from all church properties that paid homage to her. Though all her shrines within church properties were removed, other shrines began showing up in other areas. So basically, the Catholic Church 
like will not let you worship this woman as a saint because they one do not feel that she ever existed and two doesn't feel that then she would meet the qualifications to become a saint it's a really weird thing but one of sounds racist but all right right exactly well and actually one of the websites that i got a lot of information from was livesofladysaints.com so she's referred to as a saint a lot people are kind of like fuck you catholic church if you're not going to let us celebrate her in churches we're going to start popping shrines up all over the place to celebrate her like she is a huge symbol right. it's of like hope in brazil catholic church do you want offshoot religions because this is how you get offshoot religions exactly exactly well and you know it really is interesting i remember when i was doing a saint report uh they wanted us to tell the story of how they were canonized and things like that and it is a really fascinating process but i personally don't believe that saints created miracles i really don't think even this person had healing powers in her hands to make things better i think she was probably a very gifted uh you know nurse basically uh she was very kind she was very gentle and peaceful and i think because of that she was healing to many people right some people have healing energy yeah you know what i mean like some people are very good at that they're good at being nurses they're good at being healers i do think it takes a certain type of personality yeah and maybe that's what she had because i'm with you i don't really believe in magic yeah you know what i mean yeah but i do believe that some people bring peace and comfort yeah i was actually just watching a great stand-up by Patton oswald it just came out on netflix so if you're looking for a really just like wholesome great stand-up special i Patton oswald's been one of my favorites for a long time and it was so good but he has a theory about jesus so he is an atheist and he was saying that his theory is that you know, back in biblical times, everyone was dicks. So like rising from the dead, no, this guy just fell in the street and because he fell, he's going to get killed. And he's like, I'm dead, I'm dead, I'm dead. And then Jesus comes and, or no, some guy comes and helps him up. And he's like, I was dead and you saved me. And all these stories accumulated into one Jesus. It was just a really funny bit. And I liked that a lot. Right, everybody, they all were dicks. So you get somebody like Jesus that comes along who's like, hey, maybe don't throw rocks at people. Yeah. And then everyone's like, wow, what a good guy. That's exactly <laughs> what Pat Oswalt said. Watch you and Anthony should watch the special tonight. It's so funny. It was a, it was an easy, great, funny special. But it's what I really love about this story and why I didn't care if she's real or not or if the miracles are real or not or anything about that. She has continued to be such an important figure in Brazilian history. And her photo has been, you know, done by so many artists. Her portraits have been painted by so many artists. And Keegan, you mentioned at the beginning that most recently her image has been used in not a so positive way. Brace yourself for rage. Brace yourself for rage. Hopefully I screenshotted this. Let me see. Yes. So there is a photo of a woman. I can't remember now what state she was in, but this looks like some sort of, um, you know, protest to reopen. And she's holding a sign with a picture of Anastasia on it. And it says muzzles are for dogs and slaves. I am a free human being. With a photo of her next to it, which seems... I really don't know. I don't know what part of that is the worst part well like let's let's should we break it down really quick please so muzzles are for dogs and slaves i am a free human being i understand what when she's saying i'm a i'm a free human being but the thing but by her saying that to me it's dehumanizing her because she's comparing her to a dog. Yes, there's the the subtext there is that slaves are not human beings. That's the subtext there. And that might not be what she meant, but that's how language works. And that is how it's perceived. Yeah. Oh, exactly. And it's just, and that's, that's the thing that really kind of rubbed me the wrong way because I was so excited and telling Max's story and how inspiring this woman was and how much I enjoyed. Uh, I mean, God, I had to read like 20 articles and they all basically said the same stuff. I got as much as I could. If we have any Brazilian listeners who know more about her or have your own experiences with like having her in your culture in some way, I would the legacy of it. I would love to know more. Um, But yeah, I was just telling Max very excitedly this whole thing. And he's like, Oh yeah. Did you see that picture? And I'm like, Way to fucking ruin it for me. Like, Well, I mean, it's people were furious. Like the yeah. backlash to that was strong and swift. Um, but it's 
it's also this whole comparing stay-at-home orders that are meant to keep us safe and everybody in society safe, comparing it to slavery, literal slavery, is so fucking insulting. It's so insulting. I I can't even begin to describe how angry it makes me. Um, not and not just like American transatlantic slavery either against you know like African Americans, but also there have been. I saw one that was like we need to go and march on the state capitol and force him to quote let our people go. I saw that one. So too. you're comparing stay-at-home orders to the slavery of Jewish people as well. It's so fucking upsetting yeah. that these people are so entrenched in such a deep amount of privilege that they can't they can't handle being told what to do for their own safety right. and need to compare it to literal slavery. It's uh, f- it's infuriating. Yeah, I mean, I just think that I just think that people are taking things way too seriously when it comes to that. Like our rights are not being infringed upon people. Like just fucking chill. They're they're telling you to stay home so you don't get sick. It's the same thing that when you are in a job or at school and they say, "Hey, if you have a fever, stay home." And now they're like, "Well, hey, everybody could potentially get a fever, so just in case, stay home." From work right. School. Well, and this it's not just about you. <laughs> yeah. It's not just about you. I think is the big issue. I think that Americans are so self-centered that because wearing a mask is not to protect you, it's to protect other people. It makes them not want to do it. But it's so fucking upsetting. I never want to see any of these people who pretend to be patriots talk to me about how patriotic they are because your country is asking you to do one fucking simple thing and that is to stay home okay sorry two simple things wear a mask if you go out those are the things you're being asked to do and you can't do it it's so upsetting to me have you seen the uh there's a picture that was going around but busy phillips kind of explained it on her excuse me, explained it on her Instagram story the other day where she's like, this is why everyone needs to wear a mask. If there's two naked guys and one of them pees, it's going to get all over him and it's going to get all over the other guy and they're both going to be covered in pee. And one of the guys is wearing pants and one of the other guys is naked and he pees. He's going to get pee on himself, but the other guy's just going to get his ankles wet and his pants might be a little wet and he's going to be pissed off that he has piss on him. Or... If they're both wearing pants and they're both clothed and they both pee their pants, well, that's only their own problem. Or if one guy pees his pants, the other guy's just like sucks for you and can move on with his life. And I thought that was the best analogy of why we need to wear masks right. ever. It's <laughs> so upsetting, though, that we have to break it down in terms that like a five-year-old would understand right. in order to get people to like, absorb any of this information. It's so... Uh, well, and oh what's crazy it's is so the, embarrassing. The, the kids truly, I think, too, are are taking this more seriously than a lot of grownups, which is which is pretty crazy. Like even mm-hmm. I've noticed that with T and his friends and everything, like everybody seems pretty OK with what's going on. And they're just like, yeah, we're just living our lives. It's the grownups that are making everything more difficult. Right. Um, yeah, it's so true. I forgot to say this at the top, but I got. Uh, like I said, I read a lot of articles, but I got most of my information from uh, these websites, face-to-faceafrica.com, blackthen.com, historycollections.co, and livesofthelady-saints.com. And of course, my friend Wikipedia. Awesome. So that is all. That is the legend of the unofficial saint, Escrava Anastasia. I love it. Thank you so much for sharing that. Sorry I said her name a million different ways during that. I couldn't come up with how I wanted to say it. It's okay. Everyone knows what you mean. (laughs) Thank you. Okay, Madigan. Did you know that May is Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month? You know what? I just learned that two days ago. (laughs) I learned it yesterday while I was watching Hulu. Because I was like, because I learned, I read that and I was like, well, shit, we could have covered that. And we got a message from somebody that's like, hey, could you cover this in May? And I was like, well, we, why? 
why may it's and then really, I read that and I'm like shit <laughs> it's really uh, upsetting that we didn't know that like mm-hmm. why is that not more common knowledge the only reason why I know that is after you and I had had our conversation about doing this I was watching The Great on Hulu which is a good show it's fun um, but I was watching it and they did like a special little advertisement which was like a lot of like they were clips from Crazy Rich Asians and like a lot of other shows that feature Asian American actors and then at the end it said happy Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month and I was like oh my god how did I not know but it fit in really well because I had already narrowed down who I was going to do between two different people and that made the decision for me so (gasps) I love it I am going to talk to you today about Anna Mae Wong who was the first Asian American movie star (gasps) I remember learning about her in school now. She's so beautiful. I used to have, I told you I had a wall of like golden age actresses like I put, and actors. I would print out their um, pictures and hang them up on my wall. Right. And um, I had a picture of her because she was such an iconic, like she was a fashion icon, style icon, um, star of the right. golden and age. Was, isn't she in... The Ryan Murphy show Hollywood. I haven't seen it yet. That's right. I was gonna say. I yes, I haven't like seen it yet either. I want to watch it, Max and I. I finally watched the trailer this morning, though. I've been wanting to watch it, and um, I, the trailer looks good. It, I mean, man, they when you can make a good trailer, you've got me sucked in, and they made a good damn trailer for that right. show. Yeah, the trailer looks really good. Yeah, I love it. They're showing. Um, what was her name? Hattie Hattie McDaniel, I think her name was mm-hmm. the winner of the first black woman to win an Oscar, and I believe. Right. For Gone with the Wind. For Gone with the Wind, yeah. But I believe that, um, what, what is your woman's name again? I can't remember her name. Anna Mae Wong. Anna Mae Wong. I believe she's in it at some point. I feel like I she read is. that online. She is. Well, cool. Tell me about, yeah. tell me more about her, Keeks. Okay, I will. So Anna Mae Wong was born Wong Lu Song, which means Willow Frost. <gasps> I think that that's so pretty. Um, and she was born on January 3rd, 1905 on Flower Street in L.A., one block north of Chinatown. So at this point, this neighborhood, it was slightly integrated in that it had other immigrants. It had some Irish immigrants, German immigrants, Japanese Japanese immigrants, but because it was so close to Chinatown, it was mostly Chinese people. So she grew up the first five years of her life very much inundated in that lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And her parents were second generation Chinese Americans. So they were born in the United States as well. Um, But her grandparents were born in China. And her father owned a laundry shop. Mm. So in 1910, her family moved out of Chinatown and into a more integrated neighborhood um, on Figueroa Street. And they were the only Chinese people on their block. They lived alongside mostly Mexican and Eastern European families. So in an attempt to assimilate, Anna Mae and her sister went to a regular neighborhood school, but they were bullied so relentlessly with racial taunts that their parents moved them to a Chinese Presbyterian school. And around this time, the American film industry was moving out of the East Coast and setting up shop on the West Coast Mm -hmm. in Hollywood. So... There were lots of films being filmed in Anna's neighborhood, and she was instantly intrigued. She started hanging around movie sets, and she actually got the nickname from the crews on the sets. Uh, They called her CCC, which stood for Curious Chinese Child. Oh, my gosh. Because she would follow around crew members asking questions. She's just like, this is back in the day when movie sets weren't completely shut down yeah. and she could just like walk on you know, and like I'd, talk I'd, to people. I don't mean to interrupt, but there was actually a really funny story of something similar happening. I used to nanny for a little girl. She was probably about three at the time and she was on a walk with her mom. And on their street, Ryan Gosling was filming a movie and she walked. She didn't know who he was. She walked right in, walked right up to him. There's pictures of him with her. They like he's got her on her lap like she just hung out and talked. And I was like, that doesn't happen. How did you know? Like they just let I think maybe because she's a little girl. They just like she's a kid. Let her let her on. I'm sure somebody saw her and just assumed that someone brought their kid to the set and just didn't. Well, even they think were, and it was it. like they were outside. They were like on location shooting outside of a house. Yeah. So it was like in her neighborhood. I think she was just like, and her dad is a is an editor, so I think she's kind of used to that stuff too. So she was just like, "What's going on over here, guys?" And Ryan Gosling just kind of <laughs> grabbed her and picked her up and played with her for a That's while. That's really cute. I know. And the mom was like, "And he's so good looking." <laughs> yeah, we know. We we have eyes too. 
you're not telling us anything we don't know. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but so Anna Mae started skipping school so that she could watch um, them shooting. And she would memorize scenes. So she would watch and she would memorize the scenes. And then she would run home and reenact what she saw in the mirror. So she would like reenact all of their movements oh in the mirror gosh. because this was the time of silent films. Yeah. Her father, of course, was very disapproving of this because it got in the way of her studies. Yeah. Because she was skipping school. She was using all of her pocket money to go watch Nickelodeon films. And by the time she was 11, she had come up with her stage name, which was Anime Wong. So, wait, Wong so by the time was, she was 11, you said? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, because that, that was my so question. I'm like, what? Because I'm picturing anywhere from like 6 to 10. Yes. Okay. So she moved into the neighborhood when she was five. Uh, and it, it was probably around that time that film production was starting in her neighborhood. Right. So, yeah, between the age of like six and nine, six and ten, um, she was really inundated in that. And then at 11, she was like, I'm going to be a movie star. This is going to be my stage name and started going by Anime Wong. I love it. So she started working at um, Hollywood's Ville de Paris department store whenever she was like 14 or so and Metro Pictures needed 300 female extras for a film called The Red Lantern. So without her father's knowledge, a friend of her father's who had some movie connections helped her land an un- uncredited role as an extra carrying a lantern. Oh and so gosh. after this, she worked steadily for the next two years as an extra before dropping out of school in 1921 to pursue a career acting full time. So at the age of 17, she got her first leading role in the Technicolor film, one of the first color movies ever made, The Toll of the Sea. And it was a silent film, but it was in color. And she was a smash hit sensation. This was actually written about her in Variety magazine. Um, They talked about her extraordinarily fine acting. Oh, wait, sorry. This was in the New York Times. They said, Miss Wong stirs in the spectator all the sympathy her part calls for, and she never repels one by an excess of theatrical feeling. She has a difficult role, a role that is botched nine times out of ten, but hers is the tenth performance. Completely unconscious of the camera and with a fine sense of proportion and remarkable uh, pantomimic accuracy, she should be seen again and often on the screen. So wow, she was a huge. Well, and that's and the big thing, too, that I noticed in that quote was that they were talking about her like simplicity in her acting. And that's something that, you know, both of us went to school for acting. And that's something they talk a lot about. Back in the days of silent film, you had to be very theatrical. And so when it started going over to the talkies, again, it was mm-hmm. almost like a Broadway play with big gestures and big emotions being put on screen so that she was being applauded for just this simple talent is something that I feel like wasn't celebrated a lot during that time. Right. And it was this subtlety of emotion. Like it would be extremely difficult to be emotive enough in a silent film for people to understand what you're doing um, while also being subtle enough for it to seem realistic. And I'll say I got a lot of this information. Um, there was a Vulture article I read and then I watched uh, PBS did like a little short like 15 minute on like unsung women yeah. and they did one on her and um, they show her in these films. And I will say there is something like super magnetic like we talk about that it factor that people have she definitely had it and it came it came through on the screen like it it was it's undeniable and clearly it was because this was an incredibly racist time specifically against Asian Americans Chinese in particular Mm -hmm. Um, in the late 1800s there was actually an anti-immigration act which is the only one to specify a group of people ever and it specified Chinese immigrants so for them to say that she was like so great is a pretty big deal it's a huge deal I mean it was the same thing again with um, Hattie McDonald from Gone with the Wind it was kind of like Mm -hmm. a black woman can act well like it was just this kind of unheard of thing and I would your talent has to be undeniable at that at that point you have to be better than everybody else yeah Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. So uh, they started casting her in these kind of like bit roles, but it was very often, of course, she was put in these roles anytime they needed like an exotic atmosphere added to their to their show or movie. So at 19, she was cast in um, Douglas Fairbanks' picture, The Thief of Baghdad in 1924. And it was a massive success. And it launched her into stardom. Even so, she kept being typecast as either dragon ladies or these very submissive Madame Butterfly type characters. Those are the only two characters that she was ever allowed to play. Right. And... Um, most Americans viewed her as foreign born, even though she was born and raised in Los Angeles and her parents were born in the United States as well. Mm-hmm. Um, she decided to reinvent herself as a flapper um, because she thought it would make her more American. And she had this very slim figure that was perfect for the flapper era style. Um, so it worked to some degree. She became kind of this fashion icon. She was featured in U.S. magazines. She's got like this super cute, like short, short bangs, short mm-hmm. bob haircut. Yep. That's like the image yeah. I know of her in my head. Yep. Yeah. And it like she really popular popularized that like blunt bang. Yeah. Front bang. Um, but still, even though she was popular, the style icon in all these magazines, due to anti-miscegenation laws, um, they forbade interracial kissing on screen. So even if the lead character, that was the lead male character, was Asian, if he was played by a white actor, she could not be his leading lady because inevitably there would have to be a kissing scene. So what they would do is hire white men to play Asian characters. And then inevitably, even though she was this movie star, they had to hire white women to play the Chinese lead. So that was really frustrating they have, for her. Couldn't they have cast her as the lead and then when it came to the kissing moment have a stand-in? I think they didn't want even the perception that this was a thing that was happening. That makes sense. You know what I mean? Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I don't think that they wanted to do that. But it was incredibly offensive to her, of course, because it was white characters who were having their eyes literally taped back. Right. And they're putting makeup on and wearing these like exaggerated costumes that were disrespectful to her culture. AKA Mickey Rooney and Breakfast at Tiffany's. Yes. Uh, yes. <laughs> I love yeah. Mickey Rooney, but man, what were you thinking? Me too. It's not, I mean, I don't want to say it's not his fault, but like everybody was doing that yeah. at the time. It's, it's so fucked up. I still have mad um, love for him. Yeah. Uh, She was working pretty consistently at this point, and she was getting glowing reviews, um, but she was constantly being passed over for parts. And she was at her breaking point in 1928 when she was once again passed over for the lead in the movie The Crimson City, which went to a white actress who was hired to play the Chinese character. The Chinese character was the lead. Mm -hmm. Um, And to add insult to injury for her, they asked her to stay on and teach the white (gasps) actress how to eat with chopsticks. Oh, my. Wait. So she wasn't cast at all. They cast somebody else. But they were like, hey, we still want you on set to work with her on chopsticks. I'm unclear as to whether or not they gave her like another role, like a smaller role. Cause that's like a dick move. If they're like, we don't want you to act. <laughs> you I mean, know. It's a dick role. I mean, it's a dick move no matter what, uh, well, because yeah. it's like, even if they kept her on for another role, it's like, you're not giving her the lead in a movie where the lead is Chinese. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, so this was the last straw for her. So she left the United States and she went to Europe and she became incredibly successful in Europe and she starred in many fil- uh, many films and appeared on stage for the first time in a play with a young Laurence Olivier. And she worked in Paris, London, and Berlin. And when these cities began producing their own talking pictures, she learned French and German fluently so that she could star in these movies there so she spoke chinese english french and german and she was like well once you learn chinese you can learn any other language well yeah (laughs) i've heard that that is the most difficult language to learn mm -hmm. so i'm sure for her she's just like yeah this is fine (laughs) 
<laughs> she got a leg up. So she also became great friends, like best friends with Marlene Dietrich. Um, and the two women just shattered gender norms. They were both known for going out in top hats and tuxedos. And many speculated that the two women were lesbians together. Um, I think they just like fucking with people. I love Marlene Dietrich. I think they were I, both. I do too. I think they were just like, we're going to. If we're bending these stereotypes anyways, especially one of them being an Asian woman and one of them just being a woman in Hollywood, it's like, why not fuck with them a little bit? That sounds like fun. Right. I mean, and who knows? Because Anna Mae Wong never did get married. Um, and it, it is said that she had relationships with white men um, early on in her career, with white directors um, early on in her career. But that's not to say that maybe she wasn't bisexual yeah. or pansexual. Um, who knows? But during the 1930s, American studios were looking for fresh European talent. So they were they came over to Europe and ironically... They were like, oh, we know how about Anime Wong? <laughs> so they offered her a contract with Paramount Studios in 1930, and they enticed her with the promise of leading roles and top billing in films. Good. And so she was like, okay, finally, let's do this. So she came back. She started working a little bit on Broadway. She um, worked in a film called Dangerous to Know, and when she was working on that film, the director wanted her to use stereotypical Japanese mannerisms that were derived from the play Madame Butterfly in her performance of a Chinese character. And so she knew the nuances. Like, Americans are like, whatever, it's all the same. Right. And she's like, it's not the same. Japanese mannerisms are very different from Chinese mannerisms. So she refused to do that. And she was like, I will incorporate Chinese mannerisms into this character. Yeah. So she did that. Mm-hmm. So she accepted a role in 1931 in the movie Daughter of the Dragon. And in this movie, it was a very stereotypical evil Chinese woman role, which was this dragon lady role that she had been given many, many times. But she accepted this role because it was a film, um, Joseph von Sternberg's film, and it was very prestigious. But afterwards, she... Um, went on to say, why is it that the screen Chinese is always the villain and so crude a villain, murderous, treacherous, a snake in the grass? We are not like that. How could we be with a civilization that is so many times older than the West? <laughs> so she started like really using this platform to become a little bit more outspoken and political. Yeah. I mean, also because in this film, even though she had um, kind of like higher billing in this movie and she got to work with this great director, she wasn't paid well. So she worked with basically the only other um, Asian American film star at this time, which was a man named um, Hayakawa. And she received $6,000 for her work on the film. Hayakawa received $10,000. And Warner Oland, who was a white man who worked on the film, who was only in the film for 23 minutes, was paid $12,000. So she's starting to get pissed. She came back to the United States and she's starting to get pissed again. I don't mind. So, yeah. She's like, I'm going to leave. <laughs> yeah, she's like, I'm fucking annoyed right now. Um, but she starred in a movie with Marlene Dietrich called Shanghai Express. And the two, the scenes that they're in together were considered to be very sexually charged scenes. Mm. And so many people believe that they had a relationship. It just kind of like added fuel to that fire. I mean, they could have hooked up too. Why not? Maybe. In 1935, Hollywood was creating the biggest film about China to date called The Good Earth, and it was an adaptation of Pearl Buck's novel. Anna Mae made it no secret she actively petitioned to be the lead role of Olan in this film, and the part eventually instead went to white actress Louise Rainier and the other Chinese character, Olan's husband, lead character, went to white actor Paul Mooney. So they ended up offering Anna the role of Lotus, which was the only evil character in the film. And she said, if you let me play Olan, I will be very glad. But you're asking me with Chinese blood to do the only unsympathetic role in the in the picture featuring an all American cast portraying Chinese characters. Yes. I had to refuse. Yes. She's like, you're going to have a movie about China 
fill it with white actors and give the only Chinese person in the movie the villain's role? Are you kidding not me? Not on my watch, <laughs> Ellie Mae Wong Yeah, says. she was like, not today. Yeah, she was basically like, you know her what? Fuck Hollywood. Yeah. <laughs> and so she hired her own cinematographer and she traveled to China and she made her own film. She made a documentary called My China Film and it documented her travels in China, specifically the area that her family came from. Wow. So when she went back to the United States, she was determined to play more nuanced characters, and she starred in several films, including Daughter of Shanghai, of which she said, quote, this picture gives Chinese a break. We have sympathetic parts for a change. For me, that means a great deal. Like, she understood that, like, representation mattered, and you can't keep portraying Chinese people as either evil or highly submissive. Well, yeah. Like they need or, to be seen as humans. Or having the Chinese characters that you're supposed to sympathize with look white so that the audience feels right. more comfortable with it. Yeah, I think it's right, great. Exactly. I mean, it's unheard of, I believe, at that time for people to stand up for themselves that much. Just e- even male actors, I feel like when they were under contracts, mm-hmm. didn't really speak their minds that much. So for her to be for sure. a woman and a Chinese woman... And who's talking about representation during, wait, what, is this like the early, is this still the late 1800s at this point or is this the early 1900s? Oh no, we're in the 30s. We're in the 30s at this point, point. Yeah. that's what I thought. Okay, mm-hmm. yeah, like that is something that's huge and probably made her very unpopular among executives. Right, but she had to have something that kept people hiring her. Yeah. Because even nowadays when female actors are labeled difficult, they're, blacklisted they're not hired anymore you know and that's why people don't always speak up for their for their typecasting like I know somebody who's Middle Eastern but grew up in Norway and he plays nothing but terrorists yeah that's it Mm -hmm. yeah yeah um, so during World War II, Anna contributed to the war effort by auctioning off her mo- movie costumes. And during the war, um, film work became very difficult. And so she started suffering from depression and she was self-medicating with alcohol at this point. So she started drinking a lot. She saw a lot of... The, I mean, it's already difficult enough for her to find film work as a non-white actress. And, you know, the war effort really sucked the film market dry in a lot of ways. But from August 27th to November 21st, and this is this is the bit that made me want to do her in the first place. Um, so August 27th to November 21st, 1951, she starred in a detective series that was written specifically for her called The Gallery of Madame Lu Song. And she played the title role using her birth name, Lu Song. Oh. Um, and this made her the first Asian-American TV lead ever. Wow. And her character was a Chinese art dealer who in, was involved in detective work and international intrigue. And so 10 half-hour episodes aired during primetime. Um, and there were plans for a second season, but the, uh, the network, Dumont, canceled the show in 1952. And there are no copies of the show or its that exists at all. So I got this from that Vulture article. It says, according to the 1996 Library of Congress testimony of actor Edie Adams, most of the Dumont series kinescopes, including presumably any remaining episodes of the Gallery of Madame Lusong, met a watery end following a legal dispute over the network's archives in the 70s. One of Dumont's lawyers had a huge had huge semis back up into the loading dock at ABC, filled all of the stored kinescopes, Uh, and two-inch videotape, drove them to a waiting barge in New Jersey and took them out into the water and dumped them in the upper New York Bay. So all, like, the very first Asian-American... Mm-hmm. Very first Asian-American TV show with with an Asian-American lead. Gone. We can't watch any of it. It's gone. Bitches. So after the cancellation of her show, her health continued to deteriorate. And in 1953, she suffered from an internal hemorrhage, which her brother, who she lived with because she never married, um, attributed to menopause, but was almost certainly exacerbated by her drinking. 
Um, even with her struggling health, she continued to work in films and on TV throughout the 50s. In 1960, she was awarded a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame and was set to act in the Flower Drum Song, which was the first major Hollywood film with a mainly Asian American cast, which would have been incredible for her. This is the thing that she's been pushing for like her whole career. It's like the crazy but rich sadly, Asians of the time. Right, yeah, but sadly she died at the age of 56 in 1961 before she was ever able to be in that oh, film. No. Um, she died of a heart attack after battling cirrhosis of the liver. So it was really her drinking um, that led to her demise. But she left a legacy of 60 films. She ended up being in 60 films. And this is a quote that I got from somewhere. I wish I had um, marked where I got this from. But it says, she helped to humanize Chinese Americans to white audiences during a period of intense racism and discrimination. Chinese Americans had been viewed as perpetually foreign in U.S. society, but Wong's films and public image established her as a Chinese American citizen at a time when laws discriminated against Chinese immigration and citizenship. Wong's hybrid image dispelled contemporary notions that the East and West were inherently different. Because she was like, I'm Chinese, but I'm American. Yeah. I'm an American woman, flapper, movie star, yeah. and I'm Chinese. Yeah, accept me as such. And um, yeah, in 2020, actress Michelle Krusayek plays Wong in Ryan Murphy's Netflix drama, Hollywood. So I'm Very excited to see that. Thank you. Thank you for telling that story. It's making me want to watch that show even more. Oh, me too, for yeah, sure. Yeah, I have to. Max <laughs> isn't super excited to watch it. He says he still wants to, which means I'm going to have to wait to watch it until he's okay. Ryan Murphy it. is hit or miss he's for me a lot mostly of the time. Miss. He's mostly miss for me, yeah. although I did really like The People versus O.J. Simpson. I haven't seen Pose yet. I have to see that. Oh, Pose is good. I've heard Pose, Pose is, good, is great, actually. and I haven't seen mm-hmm. it. And I'm hoping I like his style with it being sarcastic, and I almost get, like, I like his jumpy cinematography work like there's parts of him that I really really like and it looks beautiful and the cast is the cast is great but the cast cast also bothered me because he never uses other people I like that there's a few new faces in this one but I it's almost a shame that this is a Ryan Murphy production because I was just thinking this when I was watching the trailer if this was done by somebody else maybe there could have been better actors like and I'm not saying that there were bad ones at all like because there's great ones but I think that the show could have been even bigger if you would if you had cast bigger names I think in in some of the roles I don't know I'm just wondering because but I'm guessing he probably had the option to cast bigger people because people want to work with him you know um so the choices that he made I think were really intentional yeah he works with the same people which I think is good but at the same time it kind of Gets re- it gets right. repetitive for me. Mm-hmm. Like, I just don't yeah. really... I, I don't know. I, I like You're it. You're not wrong about that, for sure. I mean, like, directors do that all the time. Quentin Tarantino does that. They pick their favorites, and then they recycle them. Yeah, but um, they which don't... Which can be great. But it's not like but, everybody's in everything. Like, with Ryan Murphy, it's like... You're... Like, Sarah Paulson and... Um, God, I can't think of... It. But there's a group of them. McDermott, McDermott is in but it. Like, yeah. But the whole group isn't everything Mm -hmm. you know what I mean it's not like there's a few characters like a few actors coming back it's like it's the whole group is back and I kind of I like what he's doing because I think it creates a lot of camaraderie on set probably and they're all really close but it's kind of like I want to see something different variety I don't want to see the same actors over and over again I want to see something different we're going to see because I do think he cast in a lot of these roles. So like Anna Mae Wong and like um, several other roles that are kind of these like up and coming actors in the movie. I mean, in the show, yeah. I think are actors that I don't recognize. There are. So yeah. And I do. I'm excited. For I that. do like that, too. Uh, before we end the show, I want to give a really quick shout out to my friend Lauren, who you've met. She comes to every single one of our live shows. She is the most yeah. supportive person in the entire world. I just received a text from her this morning that she is in the hospital. Um, she's not doing very well. She has, what was it? They found some issues in the arteries in her brain and in her neck and they're healing her with, with medicine right now, but there's a really high chance that she could have a pretty serious stroke. Um, and she is one of my best friends, one of my favorite people. So terrible. yeah. And she, I mean, she was totally upbeat in texting me. I think she's doing really well. I haven't heard from her. I had no idea. I invited her to hang out tomorrow. And she was like, I wish I could, but I'm in the hospital. And I'm like, girl, it's fine. Let me know. Yeah, And I I just wish, you know, it sucks because if this was any other time, 
you know, we love watching Golden Girls together. I would go and I would just kick my feet up and we'd binge watch Golden Girls and I could help her out in any way. Like this, whenever I have someone that's a friend that needs help, I want to do something. It's hard that I can't do anything right now. So she listens to the show pretty religiously. She loves it. So I wanted to give her a quick shout out. So whenever she hears this, it hopefully makes her feel better. So yeah. And, uh, you know, everybody send her all of your healing energy, all your healing vibes. We love her. She's a great girl. You'd love her. So, yeah. All right. Well, that's all we have for you guys today. I love that we've actually been getting a lot of messages in lately saying that their favorite episodes are these feminist favorite episodes. Oh, wonderful. Because we've looked, we've said this before, but we've looked at analytics where we're like, people don't seem to be liking them as much, but then we've been getting so much great feedback. So I hope this was a positive, uh, happy episode for you because you've got another one of your favorites and we love to do these yeah, too. Yeah, me too. So I, and again, if you have suggestions mm-hmm. of people that you would like us to cover in one of these episodes we would love to hear it's those always helpful especially when like because there are some times where like this week immediately I knew who I was going to do done but there are some weeks where I go through six or seven people where I'll start writing notes and not Me like too. it and have to start over so if you guys have suggestions mm-hmm. of things that there's information about or people that you you know that you love and no one else really knows about that you want us to speak about, you can go ahead and email us at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com. You can direct message us and follow us on Instagram at angry neighborhood feminist. You can also catch us on Twitter, which we sometimes use at YAMF podcast. Y a N F podcast. We also have a Facebook business and group page. You can go ahead and chat with your fellow listeners on the group page and you can rate and review us on our business page. You can also rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and if you don't already, listen to us on Radio Public. It's a free way for you to listen and it helps us out just a little bit. All right. With all that being said, we encourage you to rate on. Bye. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.